Our scripture reading this afternoon is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and read the first 11 verses. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For that they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, thanks be to God for his word. For our catechetical reading this afternoon, I'm going to be going to Canons of Dort, Head 5. And there's a number of articles in that head, but I'm just going to read a few of them here uh, this afternoon. So I'm going to read verses one, uh, Article 1, 2, 5, 8, and 14. So Article 1, and I believe it's on the screen behind you, yep. Uh, the regenerate not free from indwelling sin. Those whom God, according to his purpose, calls into the fellowship of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by his Holy Spirit, he certainly sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. Article 2, daily sins of weakness. Therefore, daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling even to the best works of the saints. For there, there, these are, for them, a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and strive for the goal of perfection until at last, delivered from this body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. Article 5, the effects of such serious sins. By such gross sins, however, they greatly offend God, incur, incur the, death of, the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense of God's favor until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly face again shines upon them. Article 8, the grace of the triune God preserves. 
So it is not through their own merits or strength, but through the undeserved mercy of God that they neither totally fall away from faith and grace, nor remain in their downfall and are finally lost. With respect to themselves, this could not only easily happen, but would undoubtedly happen. But with respect to God, this cannot possibly happen, since his counsel cannot be changed. His promise cannot fail. The calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked. The merit, intercession, and preservation of Christ cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be frustrated nor destroyed. And finally, Article 14, the use of means in perseverance. Just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So with those thoughts uh, behind us, let us come and think about especially Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 begins with this very famous, and perhaps it's been very familiar to you, this idea of running a race with this crowd of witnesses. Now, athletic competition was a popular pastime in the Greco-Roman world. Not only do we have our own Olympic Games based upon what they did in ancient Greece, but they also had throughout the year races, opportunities for men to race either horses or on foot. And these are just part of the culture of their time. People knew about them. Even if they didn't participate in the races themselves, or maybe even didn't go to the races, they knew about them. They, they knew what they meant. Even today, if you've never even watched the Grey Cup or the Super Bowl in the States, you know what it is. You know what it is when that time comes around, and you hear about it just in the, in the culture that you're in. And this is why the author of the Hebrews could use this idea of a race, because his audience would know this example would be fresh in their mind. The Apostle Paul uses it as well, this idea of a race and a runner, something people were familiar with. And in antiquity, in the ancient times, there were celebrity athletes, and there were these races that drew huge crowds, and they amassed to watch the competition. And you could go online even now and look at the ruins of these various types of cathedral, or, uh, coliseums and other ways of having these races. So when the author of the Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's what we're thinking about. These races with all these people around cheering them on, a sea of people. If any of you play sports, you would say it's much better to, to participate with a big crowd cheering you on. It, just, it gets your juices flowing in that way. But as a Christian, this, this illustration takes on more significance because we understand that Yes, we are part of this crowd of witnesses. And it's not just physically in one place at one time, but we're part of the church of all ages, the saints that have gone before, part of this cloud of witnesses, our brothers and sisters in the faith. We're not running the race alone. So let's consider this running the race this, this afternoon under three points, also from Hebrews 11 and also from the canon of the door that we considered. So first, our struggle as sinners. Second, our correction as children. And third, our finish as the faithful. So our struggle as sinners, our correction as children, and finally, our finish as 
the faithful. And brothers and sisters, as you look to Christ as a founder and perfecter of your faith, as you run your own race, as you finish your journey, and sometimes it feels as if you're not making any progress, but by God's grace, he'll bring us to the end, even as we heard uh, this morning. So first, our struggle as sinners. Now, if you ever see people running around, and I don't like to run, but other people do, then usually when they're running, they, they wear as minimal clothing as possible. Light shirts, light shoes, light shorts, all that weight that you have to carry with every single step, you shed as much as you can. And that's what the author is thinking about here in our text. Try to lay aside every weight that clings to you. And sometimes also that weight ensnares you, causes you to stumble and to fall. I want to get rid of it. And the word that the author uses to lay aside, it's used by Paul, James, and Peter to talk about casting off our sin, casting off our sinful natures, getting rid of it. So even that stuff that just can so easily entangle, we just need to shed off. But that's actually the problem. They so easily entangle us. They entice us. And we put them back on so easily. And one of the reasons that I love the fifth head of doctrine of the Canons of Dort, and perhaps the Canons of Dort is a little less familiar to you, if not utterly unfamiliar to you, but it's very honest. It's also very pastoral, especially this fifth head. And it's honest about our struggles in this life. It's honest about our struggles. We have daily sins, as the canons say, daily sins of weakness and blemishes that cling to us. And we are not always so activated and motivated by God that we cannot give into the desires of the flesh. I wrote this 400 years ago. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in that time. And I just remind you, I think my cell phone number is up there. So if you have a question, you can, you can text me. I do have my phone. But the race that we're running is not a sprint. It's a long journey. It's a marathon in that way. It's a long-distance run. It will be tough. It will be challenging. Many obstacles. We thought about even some of those even this morning. But the same is true of our faith. Our faith will be tested, trials, temptations. But we're in this race. And the Spirit of God is giving us the power to move forward. Sometimes we move forward slowly. Sometimes we're crawling along. But we're moving by God's grace. We're running this race. One of the things that's so important for us to remember is that according to especially Paul in Romans chapter 6, is we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. And we heard about that in the first head in the canons. It's no longer our master. It has no dominion over us. Do you understand what that means? Sin has no mastery over us. It has no dominion over us. It wants us to think we, it does, but it doesn't. Jesus has taken that away. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. There's no power over us. And so when we're struggling, we look to Christ. We look to Christ. Even while we're running, struggling, crawling, we look to Christ. He has freed us from our sin. Even if we are tempted by those daily sins of weakness that so easily ensnare us, cling to us, cause us to trip and stumble, we look to Christ. We look to Him. But our sins still have an effect. There's something else we need to be remembered. Our sins still have an effect. Yeah, they don't have mastery over us, but when we fall and we trip, we have consequences. And there's things that they still can do, but they also offend God. 
They grieve the Holy Spirit. And even our feeling of the exercise of our faith can be suspended. And even for a time, we can even lose the sense of God's favor. I'm sure every one of us here has felt that. Wrestling with sin, and God just seems a little bit more distant. But he never leaves us. We'll get to that later. But when that happens, God disciplines us. God disciplines us because of our sin. But the author of Hebrews says he's never disciplined you to the point of shedding your blood. Praise the Lord for that. And why not? Because Christ has already done that once for all. It's done. He shed his own blood, innocent blood, for our sins. Even if we were to shed blood, it's not worth anything anyways. We're sinners. We're imperfect. Christ's blood is of infinite value. But this brings us to our second point, our correction as children. In verses 5 and 6, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. If you know anything about the author of Proverbs, in the beginning of Proverbs, it's a king talking to his son. Most likely it's Solomon talking to his son. And the beginning of Proverbs 3 starts this way. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And Solomon goes on to teach his son. And what's included in that part of that teaching from the king to his son is that the Lord will discipline. The Lord will chasten those that he loves. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews quotes. What's the key fact in the quotation? Who does God discipline? Who does God chastise? Those whom he loves. Those whom he loves. The author of Hebrews adds in verse 7, God is treating you as sons and as daughters. God is treating us as children when he disciplines us. Now, there are a number of children here, and I'm sure every one of you, I won't have you raise your hand, but I'm sure you've been disciplined by your parents. You've been disciplined. You've been corrected by them. If you haven't, your parents aren't doing the right job. Talk to the elders about that. You need to discipline your children. In the second half of verse 7 and into verse 8, it says that. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's the role of a father and a mother is to discipline their children. So if we're not, being part, if we're not participating in this discipline, the author of Hebrews says we're illegitimate children. We're not really children in the family. So what does it mean then that even, yes, because of our sin and our weaknesses, what does it mean when God disciplines us? It means we are his children. It means that we are his sons and daughters. If I'm at the park with my kids, and we used to do this before when they're now a little bit older, but when they're playing on the playground and playing with other children, I'm not allowed to go up to another child and discipline them or correct them. Yeah, maybe they're doing something that's going to harm themselves or harm my kids. I can tell them to stop, but I can't put them in a timeout. I can't take away their iPad for a day. I can't do that. I can't discipline them. I don't have any authority over them because they're not my children. But God disciplines us as his children. God does do that. He cares for us. And we have a heavenly father that will discipline us and reprove us. And throughout verses 6 through 11, there's a root word that's interwoven throughout this text. And it's a Greek word, paideia. And it means to train and to discipline. That's what God is doing. But when God is doing that, he's doing it for a purpose. What is that purpose? What is the purpose of God training and disciplining us? It's so we can run the race. 
It's so we could finish. It's so we could take off all that which is clinging to us and ensnaring us, laying aside every weight and the sin which which clings so closely. God pushes us in the way that we should go according to his word. That's what God is doing and is training and is disciplining his children. Is that easy? Do we like it? No, we don't. It's hard. Verse 11 states the obvious. It can be painful rather than pleasant. Discipline is painful. The consequences of our sin is painful. So we try to avoid it, don't we? It's not pleasant. But think about it this way. I'm sure many of you have played a sport at some point in your life, and not very many of us are gifted enough just to pick up a basketball and to start draining three-pointers. You've got to work hard. You've got to get your stamina up. You've got to make sure you can last all the, the whole game. You've got to work hard at it. You've got to train. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. You've got to push through the pain. Train your body to do these things because there's a benefit in the long run. There's a benefit The same is true with the padia of the Lord, with his training and disciplining us. He's doing it for our good, to mold us, to make us more and more to the likeness of his son. That's what God is doing to every single one of us. We cannot forget that God does this because he loves us. He's our father. We're his children. He's molding us and shaping us to the image of his son. On a number of occasions, the Bible uses this idea that we are branches into the vine. And how some of you maybe are farmers, sometimes you have to prune the vines, take those branches and cut them off. And God does that to us all the time. And that even there, that too is painful. We don't like it. But we know we need to shed off these things. These things that are weighing us down and snaring us. It's for our ultimate good. We trust the Lord. He is the perfecter of our faith. He'll prune us. He'll train us. He'll discipline us. But then the question comes, how does the Lord do this? How does the Lord discipline us as his children? Well, God disciplines and trains us in in two main ways. Privately and publicly. Privately and publicly. And we see some of these private and spiritual discipline in Articles 5 and 13, which we didn't read uh, earlier. But the fifth had a doctrine that canons adored, and it It tells us about how God does this. In Article 5, which we read, it says, losing the awareness of grace for a time. We have this sense that we have offended God, and God, it seems as if he's distant to us. That's God disciplining us. That's God correcting us. Article 13 says, the withdrawal of the face of God, which for the godly is more bitter than death. We have this idea that God's face is shining away from us, and we hate it. It's God working in us. It's God correcting and molding us. Because when we are God's children, what has he done to our hearts? He's given us new life, a new birth by the Holy Spirit. Our hearts have been changed. Our affections, our wills, they desire the things of the Lord. Of course, not perfectly, but we have that desire. It's when the Lord disciplines us, when he corrects us because of our sins and our failures. We feel shame. We feel sorrow, a godly sorrow, because we sinned against the holy God. We would never have had that before the Spirit regenerates us. We have this godly sorrow. Our spirits are contrite, but that leads us to repentance. We hate our sin, 
We run away from it and run to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the Lord disciplining, training, correcting us, and nobody else knows. It's just God working on us. Just me and the triune God. But God also uses others. And sometimes even our sins can be more public. So God can use others to discipline and train his children. And even in the context of the church, it can become even to that point where it's public there in the body of Christ. Just think about how God has done this in the Bible. After David had sinned grievously against Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, how did God inform David? He sent Nathan the prophet to confront him in his sin. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul tells us, says, as believers, that we are to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters, and if we see one of them sinning, we bring it to them. And caught, in their tra- tra- caught in their transgression, we come and restore them. And we do that because we are a family, the family of God, and God uses others to mold and train us as well. And we must be open to allow God to do that in our life. We have to be open for that possibility that God's going to use others to help us, to discipline us, and to train us. So when one sinner comes to another sinner, we need to be open to that. God is working behind the scenes. This is important for a congregation to recognize. You don't have to be an elder or a pastor to work Christian discipline. You do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. He has to gently and with compassion, but you come alongside them. And God uses many people, many different people, to train and discipline his sheep. Sometimes I think we just think Christian discipline is just for the church. And there is a role for that. We're going to get that in just a second. But it's also part for all the brothers and sisters. Because there is this opportunity, though, where discipline gets more formal. And that's where Matthew 18 speaks of addressing sins first privately, You bring somebody else. The church isn't even involved in those first couple of steps in Matthew 18. But then if they harden their heart and they continue to do so, then what happens? The elders are involved and they exercise discipline. But even there, I don't know if you've experienced Christian discipline happening in the church. Maybe some of you have served as elders in the past. Every single time there's much prayer that goes behind it. There is so much prayer. May the Lord work in this person's life, call them to be reconciled to God and his church. It's not a joyful thing to do because somebody's hardened themselves in their sin. Instead of casting it off, they're just buckling it up even more, keeping it on. And that's where God has given the keys of the kingdom to his church. They continue to harden themselves. The church declares they're outside the kingdom. Outside the kingdom. What has been bound on earth we bound in heaven. It's very serious. Exercised by the elders of the church. But every single step of that process, there's so much prayer. Asking that the Lord will bring them back. And I would hope that most of you have never experienced that for yourself, like on you. Maybe in part of a church where they've had to exercise that against somebody else. But what if we're not formally being disciplined? What if we're, by God's grace, we're doing pretty well, as it were? How does the Lord continue to correct and train us as well? What what has He given us to help us? It's our everyday lives. First, He's given us a new life. He's given us the Spirit. Our hearts are changed. 
And as the canons of George say, it's an imperishable seed. God has given that to us. It can never go away. God has given us his imperishable seed. But second, God has given us his word and spirit. According to Article 7, it certainly and effectively renews his saints through repentance. We have God's word. We have God's word to help train and mold us. But finally, God works in his grace by the proclamation of the gospel and the use of the sacraments. We call those the means of grace. That's where God has promised to give his grace to his people. Preaching of the gospel and the sacraments. But Article 14 of the Canons of Dora gives us a couple more things to consider. One way God preserves and completes his work, it's of course through the hearing of the gospel, but also through the reading of it. I always love that line. And also the reading and the meditation of God's word. And I pray that you do that regularly, even on your own, or as a family. I think especially on your own. Well, God can use his word to train, discipline us. The reading and meditation of God's word. This morning, as we think about Psalm 84, I mentioned the fact that when somebody is wandering, one of the first things they do is to stop going to church. But probably even before that, is to just stop reading God's word. They're no longer being formed, no longer being shaped, no longer being disciplined by God when they read his word. Because God uses that to train up his children, to make us his disciples. So we don't, we don't neglect the means of grace, but we also don't neglect reading God's word as well. Because what's our goal? Our goal is to finish well. And that brings us to our final point, our finish as the faithful. And if you know anything about the canons of Dord, we're talking about the fifth head of doctrine, the last one, and that's having to do with the perseverance of the saints. How God will bring us to the end. And we're going to be God's redeemed children despite all of our sins, failures, and weaknesses. God will bring us. God is the one doing it. God is the one preserving us. And throughout our text in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, there's these glimpses of that finish that God is bringing us to. Right in the very beginning of our text, we're running a race. We have this cloud of witnesses. But who's at the end? Who's at the end? It's Jesus Christ. Christ is there. Christ himself is at the end. And what is he doing? He's sitting down. Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's actually really important. Because can you run a race sitting down? Generally, no. You've got to be up. You've got to be moving. You've got to be on your feet. Why is Christ sitting down? His race is done. He's finished his race, and he finished it perfectly. So he is sitting at the Father's right hand in the enthronement that he deserves. His work is done. But now his work is applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So even as we are running our race, we look to Christ. We're looking at the end. Yeah, we're weary. We're discouraged. But we don't have to shed our blood because Christ already did. We can look at that. In the midst of our races, Christ's work is done. He shed his blood. Then later in verse 10, we're reminded again that God disciplines us for our good. And what's the purpose of that? To share in his holiness. God is sanctifying us. That's what sanctification means, becoming more and more holy. We might not always see it. And quite often, the more and more we know about our sin and we were wrestling with it, we think, oh, we're not being sanctified. But God is working in us. 
He's just digging deeper and deeper, and we see the depth of our sin. But God is working. God is working. He's preparing us for glory. Because it's in glory that we will be fully sanctified. Finally. Done with sin. It's over. Looking forward to some way struggle with doubt. Some of us perhaps have even been taught from an early age you can't have any assurance of your faith. Look to Christ. Christ is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the finisher. We look to him. We don't look to ourselves. We look to Christ. Because if we have to look at ourselves and on our own resources, well then we have nothing to hold on. Then we of course have no assurance. We're just going to fall and stumble all the time. But the canon say in Article 8, because of God's undeserved mercy, the believers cannot be lost. It's not on It's on God's undeserved mercy that we cannot be lost. And if somehow we were, hypothetically, what does that mean about God's promises? They're void. They're worthless. God's plan, it cannot change. Promises cannot fail. That's what we're hoping on. That's what we're banking on. It's God's promises. So that's why we trust in Christ. We're trusting in all God's promises that are yes and amen in Him. Our sins are completely forgiven. His righteousness is given to us. That's a legal act of God. The gavel went down to the quarrel of God to justify every single one of God's children cannot be revoked, cannot be taken away. The sealing of the Holy Spirit that he's done on our hearts cannot be wiped out. And I pray that even as your head hits your pillow tonight, that's what you're trusting. You're not trusting the fact, oh, I did a good job today, I went to church twice. I gave a little extra to the offering basket that went by. That's what our hope is about. Our hope is based on Jesus Christ and what he has done. The promises of God. And it's God that's going to give us the strength to persevere. The strength to endure. He promised to do it. He promised to bring us to the end. Is that going to be easy? No. We're going to trip, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. It's not going to look pretty at times. But God will bring us. God will bring us to the end. He's training us. He's disciplining us. Because we're his children. And in the midst of our wilderness journeys, again, even as we thought about this morning, we looked at Christ. The author of Hebrews is so wonderful. Late earlier he says, Jesus knows what it is to be human. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be tempted. He never sinned, but he was tempted. So Jesus knows. So we look to him. He's our perfect intercessor. He's our perfect hypothesis. Brothers and sisters, find comfort in the gospel. 
Cover what God has done through Christ for you. All of his promises are yes and amen. And we will finish. And we will finish as the faithful, not because we are faithful, but God. He'll bring us to the end and make all things new. With those thoughts, are there any questions? Oh, I got a text. I've never done this before. <laughs> How do I prepare my heart to receive Christian discipline from another sinner? That's a wonderful question. One thing we have to do is we have to recognize when somebody comes to us, it's a sinner coming to another sinner. And so we can't automatically judge them, well, you're a sinner. Because that's, that's where our mind is going to go. But Jesus said, you know, make sure you take the log out of your own eye before you point out the speck to another person. That doesn't mean we never do it. It means we do it very carefully. So when you're going to somebody... You know they're another sinner, you know you're a sinner. But you go to them, usually with God's word, saying, brother, sister, I've noticed this. But as on the receiving end, there's a question to ask, how do you prepare your how do you prepare your heart to receive discipline from another sinner? You do it now. You do it now. You always are ready to receive discipline from the Lord, however it works in you. So prepare your heart to do now. Even if you don't have any gross sins or anything you're really struggling with, you're already preparing. Lord, work with me, hold Somebody else comes, your hearts are prepared already. Anything else? Nothing else is coming to you? If you have anything else, you can ask me afterwards. But let's, let's close the prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you, Lord, we ask, we pray that you will continue to mold us and shape us. And Lord, we do recognize that that will be painful at times. And Lord, we also recognize that you use fellow sinners to correct us. And Lord, may we be open to that. But Lord, if you ever also use us to help correct our brother or sister, Lord, may we do so graciously. But also knowing, Lord, that we are doing it according to your word. We remove the law out of our own eyes to help our brother and sister. So Lord, may we do that. Knowing again, Lord, that it is your word correcting us as your children. Here is something we pray. Amen. So let us stand and sing hymn 43, Lo, what a cloud of witnesses, a very fitting hymn for.